So last Sunday morning, Wilson helped us to see that a disciple is someone who sees things differently. And we learned a new kind of seeing will lead to a new kind of living. And so we've entered that section of Scripture that deals explicitly with discipleship. It's Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. And as Mark likes to do, he brackets this section with these two healing stories. And so last Sunday morning, we saw that very first healing story. It's Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. It's that strange, odd healing, a two-step healing story of a, of a man uh, who couldn't see clearly at first, but then he was touched a second time by Jesus and could see. And then the other healing story is found at the very end of Mark chapter 10, and it's blind Bartimaeus, and his eyes are opened as well. But between these two healing stories, Jesus helps us to see what it really means to be a disciple. And so today we're considering a disciple's life. And so right after this two-step miracle that we witnessed last week, Jesus is with his disciples, and he asks them a very important question. We've seen all through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is concerned about identity. And so he asks the question, who do people say that I am? And they get all kinds of, of responses. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, that is, you are the Christ. He answers correctly, and it seems as if Peter can really see. But as we'll see, understand, come to understand in just a moment, Peter's eyes are only partially opened. He needs them to really be opened. And so Jesus begins to teach them. And what he's going to tell them in Mark 8, 9, and 10 is so important that he mentions it three times. And so in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, here's what Jesus says. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Notice it says the Son of Man must be killed, must suffer. Now this is not optional. This is something that's essential. He must do this. And it says he's going to be rejected by the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law. We wonder, who are these people? Well, these are the religious people. These are the moral people. These are the best of the best. And when they're introduced to Jesus, they reject him. It's not that Jesus is going to be put on the cross by this angry mob. Oh no, when King Jesus is presented to the moral and the best... They reject him. And we often do the same. Here is Jesus, the Son of God. And instead of worshiping this king, instead of this king being on the throne, we often want to be on the throne. And so Jesus speaks plainly about all of this, and Peter decides to take Jesus aside and explain things to him. In fact, it says that Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. You see, it may be that Peter doesn't see as clearly as we thought he did. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus looks at the disciples and the crowd, and he begins to rebuke Peter. 
And he utters those very familiar words. He says, you get behind me, Satan. You see, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. And this temptation is as old as Genesis chapter 3. You remember how Satan comes to Eve and then to Adam and says, um, you know, if you eat from this fruit of this, this fruit from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. And ever since that moment, we've had to ask the question, are we willing to let God be God or are we trying to be like God in our lives? And if the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God, the quickest way to be godly is to refuse to be God in our lives. It's to let Jesus be king. And so Jesus calls the crowd and his disciples together, and he's about ready to say something that's very, very significant, very important. If we want to understand what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be his disciple, then these words are very significant. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must. You you must do this. Now, often we like to have two categories. We say there are Christians and their disciples, or there are people who like to come to church occasionally and give a little money, and there are disciples. There are, are folks who show up at church on occasion, and there are people who are sold out zealous followers of Jesus. But one of the things that Jesus is going to teach us, there are not two categories. It's like the old preacher used to say, you're a saint or you ain't. And Jesus is going to tell us, if you're going to follow me, here's what that's going to look like. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Deny themselves? I'm not sure I like the way that sounds. To deny. I'm not sure I want to deny myself anything. What's Jesus really saying? You see, a lot of times we think being a Christian means saying no to things. And if we're really good at saying no to things, especially those things we really like, then we're probably a good Christian. Think about these two images. Is Christianity more like the brake pedal or the gas pedal? And so if we read this passage where it talks about denying ourselves, we're prone to think maybe it's more about the brake pedal. More, maybe it's more about saying no to things. What I want us to understand today, which I think is very important, and we're going to put it up on the screen, it's so important. Jesus is not saying that we must deny something. He is saying we must deny self. He's not saying we say no to all these things. No, he's saying we say no to ourself. And understand, this is much more radical Let's think for a moment about the word deny. It seems to me in the Gospels there are two contexts when this word is used. It's used here by Jesus, but it's also used later in the ministry of Jesus. When when Jesus is going to the cross, it's his last week, and you recall that three times Peter stands in front of folks, and they say, don't you know Jesus? And Peter says, I don't know the man. And finally, after the third time Peter denies the Lord, he hears that rooster crow. What a powerful and difficult that moment must have been for Peter. 
So, what does it mean to deny yourself? Here's what it means. It's like you look in a mirror and say, I'm not with him. You look in a mirror and you say, I'm not following him. That guy right there, he doesn't, he's not in charge of my life. Denying self means you look in a mirror and you say, I, I know you want to be treated well, but you know, we're going to take up a wash basin and a towel and we're going to wash some feet. It's like you look in a mirror and say, I know you want to go first, but you know what? You're going to go last. I, I know. I know you want to give him a piece of your mind because of what he said, but you know what you're going to do? You're going to turn the other cheek. I know you want to be on the throne in charge of your own life. And yet, Jesus is now on the throne. Jesus is now the one that you're going to worship and follow and love. But Jesus says something else. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross. Now, we have an uneasy relationship with the cross. Certainly, um, we honor the cross. We see a lot of people who wear crosses as jewelry. From time to time, we'll see athletes, and, and before they step into the batter's box, they'll reach down and kiss the cross. But what does it mean to take up our cross? You see, in the ancient world, whenever you saw someone carrying a cross, you know they were headed to their own execution. I'll never forget a controversy uh, the cross sparked at a church where I once preached. We had this cross, it was up on stage. It had been there for some time, and then one Sunday morning I arrived and the cross was gone. And no one knew where the cross went. And so some thought, well, maybe it's stored in a closet, uh, maybe they were cleaning up and they just moved it aside. And we looked all around, never could find it. And several weeks passed. And then someone once asked the custodian, do you know anything about where the cross went? And the custodian said, well, I, I disposed of it. And they said, well, why did you dispose of it? He said, well, he said, not everyone liked it. In fact, it was a stumbling block for some people. And so the elders met and we had this conversation about the cross and it was decided we would we would have a new cross made, and so we had an, a, one of our uh, church members worked up in Santa Fe for a door company, and so he was used to working with his hands and making things. He said, I'll, I'll make a cross. And so every day after work, Baird would, would be in the workroom, and he would be working on this cross, and some of the uh, other co his co-workers saw what he was doing. They said, well, what's, what's going on? What are, you, what are you making? And he said, well, I'm making a cross. Well, these guys were kind of rough around the edges kind of guys. They weren't Christians. And they said, can we help you make the cross? And so I had this image in my mind of these, these guys working with this wood, sanding and varnishing. At the end of the day, they made this very beautiful cross. I've noticed that it seems to me there are at least two responses to the cross. On the one hand, there are people who are uncomfortable with the cross. They're uncomfortable with it because of what it requires. You see, a cross suggests death. There are some people who, in fact, though they may not say it like this, they live like this, they want Christianity without a cross. But on the other hand, 
There are others who are drawn to the cross. They're drawn to the cross because on the cross we see the amazing love of God. On the cross we see the only person who is truly innocent taking our place, dying for our sins. In His body, He he experienced the penalty for my sin and for your sin. And so Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and then notice, He finally says, follow me. Now Peter had earlier gotten it wrong. Jesus says to Peter, after uh, uh, after Peter rebuked Jesus, Jesus says to him, you get behind me. You see, that's where a disciple belongs. Not in front of Jesus, not beside Jesus, but a disciple belongs behind Jesus, following Jesus. And to follow Jesus is to obey Jesus. Jesus is not simply a Savior to be admired. Jesus didn't die so that we could go on living in our sin and disobedience and say, oh, I'm so grateful for the grace of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls that cheap grace. And while salvation is free, make no mistake about it, it is not cheap. You see, our response to the grace of Jesus should always be, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you lead. Now, with all this talk about denying ourselves and taking up a cross, why would anyone follow Jesus? In fact, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Kevin, this message is far too harsh. It's too much. You can almost imagine the people as Jesus is, is talking about denial of self and taking up this cross, which suggests dying to self. When we think of a cross, we think of blood that's shed, we think of nails and crowns of thorns. You can almost imagine the people starting to walk away. And so what Jesus says next is very important. It's like he, he, he anticipates their response. And so the Lord makes this bold declaration, and then He asks two questions. Two questions that I want Jesus to ask each of us that are important. And so here's that bold declaration. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now think about what Jesus is saying here. See, we all want to save our lives. We all want a a life that's worthwhile, that's complete, that's rich. We want a, a life that's infused with meaning. I think deep within us, we all hunger for that kind of life. But here's the irony. Jesus says, but whoever, he says, loses their life for me and for the gospel, they're the ones who actually find life. Let me put it like this. Christians who give their lives to God get self-fulfillment by not seeking self-fulfillment. In fact, I would say the way to self-fulfillment is the way of self-denial. Because you see, we find our deepest, best self by seeking God. By losing our life for the gospel, we actually, at that point, find real and lasting life. Now, here are two questions Jesus asks, and let let him ask these questions of you. He says, what good is it if someone 
gains the whole world and yet forfeits their soul. Imagine for a moment, you have everything you've always wanted. You gain everything. And yet in your pursuit of those things, you forfeit your soul. Is it worth it? Well, of course not. And I've known plenty of people, haven't you, who seemingly have everything. But deep down inside, they feel as if they have nothing. And we could share story after story about people who have a wealth or fame or notoriety. They have everything, and yet they're lonely. And they, they feel like they, haven't, they don't really have anything. And so here's Jesus' second question. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For what would you be comfortable giving in exchange for your soul? Your soul is the deepest part of you. Your soul is priceless. It's what you will carry into eternity as you have this new, new, uh, as you ha uh, have this new body. And so let's let these two questions sink deeply into our hearts. You know, the sad truth of the matter is there are many people who approach life and they don't ask these sorts of deep questions and they're spending their life on nothing. But Jesus says, how would you like to invest your life in things that really matter? And so imagine the scene. Here's the Apostle Paul. He is standing in front of Nero. He's defending himself in front of this, the most powerful man on the planet. You can just imagine uh, his royal robes. You can imagine the throne, what, what this might look like as he is standing in front of, of Nero. Everyone knows Nero. And here's Paul. Paul in his own letters tells us that he's not really that impressive physically. And not really many people know who Paul is. He is this obscure Jewish man who's written a lot of New Testament letters, who started churches. He's the leader of this little heretical band called The Way. Nobody much knows Paul. But the interesting thing is now, 2,000 years later, we want to name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. As we look at Paul... He's filled with incredible joy. I know he's filled with joy because we read letters like Philippians 4 where Paul says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And we wonder where did this joy come from? Where did this sense of purpose and meaning come from? Paul knew the, knew the secret. He knew the answer. We find our deepest, best self, not by seeking self, but by seeking God. If you want a life that is rich and rewarding, a life that is full and abundant, it comes as we deny ourselves, as we take up our cross, and as we follow Jesus. You see, if you lose your life for Jesus, serving and loving others it's then that you'll truly find real abundant life. I would love to continue this conversation with you this week. If, if you'd like to talk about these ideas or other ideas, what it means to follow Jesus, what does it mean to deny self, what does it mean to take up your cross, I would love to have that conversation. Email me at my church at the church, kowen at collegehills.org. 
or give me a phone call, and I would love to, to continue this conversation. I hope, hope your week is a blessed week.